0: Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today's episode, we're going to look at how the cybersecurity regulatory environment is changing. And additionally, we're going to highlight what each of you can do to ensure that your organization is well-positioned for this change. But first, let's listen to a word from our sponsor. RISC 360 is a cybersecurity technology and consulting firm that works with high growth technology firms to help leaders build, manage, and certify security, privacy, and compliance programs. They publish weekly thought leadership webinars and, especially relevant to today's show, downloadable resources such as their PCI compliance program workbook, a business case for SOC 2, ISO 27001, the path to certification. And many more titles, all available for download at no charge at risk360.com/resources. Let Risk360 help you build your business case to achieve certification compliance. That's r i s k three s i x t y dot com. Now let's start with the basics. When we think about cybersecurity laws and regulations. I could go through and enumerate a ton of them, but that's not what this episode's about. This is not a trivia contest. Okay, name the 99 elements of GDPR, or what is here, what is there. You're probably well aware of that. You can certainly look that up very easily. What I want to talk about more is actionable things that you can do as a CISO or as a security leader to help protect your organization by staying in alignment with these requirements and being able to identify when they come out as they come out, such that you're not gonna find yourself for example, using one or two or three generation old document only to find that that's not going to really help you pass your audit. So what we find then is that there's some familiar burdens among all these different laws and regulations. And, and we found four commonalities. So number one is the data incident notification laws. we say we want you to provide notice to the government and individuals in a timely manner when you have a data breach. Now, there's a new SEC regulation that's been a big deal because it requires disclosure within four calendar days or four business days. And and the mainstream media makes it look really big. But anybody who's done business in Europe realizes that GDPR has required data disclosure within three days for quite some time. Now, there's some back and forth on that in terms of when you have to disclose. What is a material breach? That's the criteria for the SEC. And material breach has its own definition. That's usually best arrived at by your legal department, allowing them to decide, is this going to cause an investor or somebody to change their mind about this organization based upon what this information is, had they known about it. Number two is the data minimization laws. Now, these would be laws that are designed to minimize collection of data or limit where data can be stored. For example, China's personal Information Protection Law, PIPL, requires a Chinese PII data stay in their country. And additional laws like the GLBA, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which has been around for a long time, they require the banking sector to explain their information sharing practices to their customers and to safeguard sensitive data. Used to be the only thing I would ever get in the mail for a while was my GLBA notice once a year because I went everything else was online. Now I think they can even deliver that online. But the point is, once a year, you're going to hear from your financial institution saying what they share what they can't share, how you can opt out of it, how you can contact that, etc. But the bottom line for all these things are is that if you aren't collecting data for a clear business purpose, you probably shouldn't collect it and you absolutely should not retain it because at that point, this additional information can become a liability. The third commonality we see are licenses and business approvals. See, many industries are regulated by the state or the government, and they force businesses to obtain a license to have some sort of approval from that organizational element. Now, for example, insurance companies have to be licensed by a state before they are authorized to conduct business. Uh, Banks also need business approvals from the federal government before they can connect to the Federal Reserve Banking System. And this means that regulators oversee multiple companies. Now, they do this by conducting audits and exams. They evaluate if the company meets or surpasses some recognized standard of best practice. Now, if a company doesn't meet that standard, then the regulatory body can issue a finding. Sometimes that finding is known as a matter requiring attention, or MRA. If the finding's really bad, it might be classified as a matter requiring immediate attention, or MRIA. Now, These MRAs and MRIs will be briefed to the CEO on a routine basis as well as to the regulatory body until they're remediated. So kind of like war games, the only winning move is not to play. Don't go there. And then the fourth one that we're saying is required language in commercial contracts. We're starting to see more and more cybersecurity requirements specified in commercial contracts. For example, We require our payment providers to maintain compliance with the payment card industry data security standards, commonly known as PCI DSS. Well, that's kind of reasonable. You kind of hope that the payment card providers would do that. Or we require all vendors to keep high trust certification on their systems that store personal health information, or PHI. See, it's fairly common for commercial contracts to now include language that grants one party the right to audit the other party. And that way, they can periodically assess if the company continues to meet the security requirements required by the contract. For example, you might say that we'd like to see your yearly penetration tests performed by an external third party. And this allows us to verify that your company's website hasn't ignored patching key vulnerabilities. Now, I see requirements come to where we get these big long lists of questionnaires that you fill out, and have you done this? Have you done this? Etc. And occasionally, they ask to see, can we get a copy of this audit? Now. When I'm evaluating vendors, if they've got a SOC 2 Type 2, then they just, yeah, we got one here. Take a look at it. All right. And go through there. And so independent third-party auditor, they have attested that these things are true and correct. And I go, all right, that really lowers my perception of what this risk might be of doing business with this other party. Now, if they're too small to have a reasonable expectation of doing a SOC 2 Type 2, because Financially, it's going to cost you something. Then there may be other reasons that you want to come up with other approaches for doing so. But again, the whole idea of having some required language in commercial contracts, I think we're going to continue to see that and see more of that. Simply because what it provides for is an assurance to um, you know your management that you've done something about. Well, let's say supply chain risk. You're dealing with your contractors, and we know that they're less likely to have a breach of our information if they comply. That. Okay. So, in addition to these four familiar burdens, let's review them, data incident notification laws, data minimization laws or regulations, license and business approvals, and required language and commercial contracts, we're also observing some new trends in the laws and regulations. Now, here's a couple of examples. Number one is the standards that must or should be met. Now, Sarbanes-Oxley, S-O-X, which is for publicly traded companies here in the United States, ISO 27001, SOC 2 Type 2. By the way, you know what SOC stands for? I actually had to look it up for this episode because I've always been talking at SOC 2 Type 2. It's service organization control. So there you go. That's a 200-point Jeopardy question. Or the Center for Net Security, Critical Security Controls. Latest version has 18 of them. Now, see, these standards require an organization to demonstrate that they have evidence showing that they perform a series of controls. Now, Note that these standards may vary widely from one to the other. For example, ISO 27001 does not have a requirement for pen testing. Yet in the Center for Net Security control set, it's control number 18. Now, here's an important quote to keep in the back of your mind. So back in 2016, Kamala Harris, who then was the California Attorney General, said during a speech on data breach that CIS controls are a minimum level of security that any organization that processes personal data should meet. Think about that. In other words, if you don't meet the CIS controls, the Office of the California Attorney General would probably find that you're not meeting your minimum level of security and likely award damages to anyone that is negatively impacted by what is perceived as your negligence. So understand also sort of the regulatory political climate that's out there. Now finally, we're seeing specific cybersecurity laws and regulations getting updated or upgrades. For example, GDPR is being upgraded with the Digital Operations Resilience for the Financial Sector, or DORA. See, DORA establishes uniform requirements for securing information systems that process financial information and also requires digital operational resilience testing and, and measures for sound management of third-party risks. Now, similar enhancements on increasing cyber-specific requirements are occurring. With the Federal Trade Commission Safeguards Law, the New York Department of Financial Services, NYDFS regs, and even the new SEC requirements on cybersecurity. So given all these new laws and regulations, what are the executive takeaways? Now, the first thing we need to understand is there are a lot of change coming from a lot of countries and governments and states and federal agencies. And therefore, you need to understand under what jurisdictions your companies and your data that you're operating fall. If you're a U.S. company, it sells to Europe. You need to understand what regulations apply to you. Is it just the U.S. regs? Is it the EU regs, or is it both of them? And some jurisdictions may say that losing a customer email or address requires a disclosure, and other jurisdictions say, "Hey, all that information—it's in the phone book, so it's already public information." Remember when GDPR came out, and some of the requirements over there said IP addresses, sort of like PII's. Really? Well, okay whatever. They're going to be different. And the important thing is get legal counsel. Go talk to the lawyers. They're expert on these nuances and have them give the best advice that you can follow. Now, once you know the laws and the regulations that you need to follow, because you go to them and said, hey, here's our business model. Here's what we do. Here's the data we process. Here's where our customers are. Legal, please tell us what frameworks should we comply with. So it's not necessarily your responsibility you have a legal department. You want to take that expert advice because it's shown then that, you know, some people would say, well, good, now I got someone else to blame if we miss it. That's not the point. You're really not trying to blame somebody, but rather you're making sure that they're catching something and say, hey, you know, you forgot about that. Oh, okay, great. Or actually this doesn't apply. And here's why it doesn't apply. Well, if they find something that doesn't apply that you thought that did and then make a good legal case for it, it's like, takes you a little bit off the compliance list. So. Once you know these laws and regulations, you've got to create some system or process to ensure that you follow them. For example, one cyber law might require that you brief your board of directors annually on the status of your cybersecurity program. Now, if you're not tracking this requirement or you weren't even aware of it, you might forget. You might not even get invited to talk to the board. And then six months later, you're asked to submit an attestation saying what you did that year. Did it comply with such and such a regulation? And you're going to go like, oh, yeah. Um, I guess you didn't meet that requirement. Well, you should be honest on attestations and then say, okay, we missed it. And of course, that's going to bring additional attention by the regulators. And these are people you don't want to breathe in down your neck. So you can avoid this trap by documenting what needs to be done and getting alerts when these things come up in advance. Treat them similar to any audit findings, and then you'll be in good shape. I'll share with you for a moment information from one of our sponsors here. See, at work, bridging the gap between risk management, IT security, and departments like finance, product, and development can be daunting. Now enter C-Prime, specializing in harmonious integration through secure code training, DevSecOps implementation, and zero-trust practices. We streamline, optimize, and drive innovation, empowering continuous security ops. Transform risk management at cprime.com, slant train, and use the code C-Prime, P-O-D, for 15% off training. At least your potential with us. That's cprime.com. All right, now let's take a look at a good overall approach toward ensuring your company remains compliant with new laws and regulations. Number one, first, ask the IT department to create a matrix showing where each IT application is hosted. You want to know where the applications are hosted for primary and backup data centers. For example, The primary location of application ABC might be in Europe, but the backup for application ABC must be hosted in the US. Now, number two, next, what do you want to understand the customer demographics? For each application, does application ABC, which is hosted in the US, allow European citizens to purchase a product from its website? And if so, chances are this American application is gonna contain European PII and PCI information and therefore be subject to EU regulations kind of makes sense, but if you didn't know where this stuff was happening, you'd have a hard time putting together this matrix. Number three, now once you have a mapping of your applications and where they process customer data, go to your legal and compliance organizations and identify what laws are in scope for each application. Remember we talked earlier about legal may say this may or may not apply because now you can assign evidence collection to certain apps. For example, the application may be a requirement to meet HIPAA and PCI DSS as compliance, Then you can use something like the secure controls framework which i'll talk about in a moment to identify a superset of controls from hipaa and pci that would be assigned to application abc for evidence collection and then you just repeat this evidence collection for each application so now you've got a process now a key aspect of compliance is being able to monitor changing laws and regulations they're not fixed forever for example if gdpr gets this new enhancement like DORA, then you wanna make sure your organization follows both the core GDPR as well as the DORA. And if you only follow GDPR, then you have some explaining to do when your regulators come in and said, show us how you comply with the DORA, and you're not doing it. Now, there's a couple of solutions to this. One is you could subscribe to a service like Regroom and that indicates new regulations that may impact your organization. Number two is you could pay an attorney the modern laws and regulations and report those updates back to you. Or you could look at the secure controls framework and see what new regulation mappings are added to the latest version of this framework. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. For simplicity's sake, let's say we don't have a ton of money. We don't have authorization to go out and hire attorneys to do this. We're not buying apps. So we've got to just figure this out. So if you go to securecontrolsframework.com, you can download the free Excel mapping. We'll, We'll put a little link to that in the notes. Also, my friend James Tarala and his wife, Kelly, they put together auditscripts.com that also has an excellent mapping as well. So these two resources are made available for the good of the order, so to speak, by these two sources, and they got great information. For the purposes of brevity, I'm only going to dive into one. We'll dive into the secure controls framework. And if you look at that mapping in this downloadable Excel spreadsheet, you'll see that they've enumerated 1,168 controls. And they're going to map these to almost every known standard. Now, they don't all map to the same standard, so it might be a blank there, but if it says, this control here, do pen testing, okay, fine, that's number 18, got it, etc. Wow. Now, I don't know about you, but getting evidence for 1,168 controls sounds like a lot of work, especially if you have to do this for 100 different applications. Now, the good thing is, If you did your prior effort, you don't have to collect all of it. Because remember, use your matrix from before and only map to the required standards for evidence collection. For example, if you have a particular app that only has to meet ISO 27001, that means out of the entire 1168 controls, only 93 of them are really going to apply. And then you could ignore the rest of them for that particular app. And now it's starting to get a little bit more controllable, but there's still a lot of things to track. And so at this point, we're going to highly recommend using a compliance tool because it gets really tricky to track hundreds or thousands of requirements in an Excel spreadsheet. You you could try it, but if you want to have emails asking each application team to provide evidence, I don't know how you're going to stick all that in Excel spreadsheet. So just don't do that. Pick a tool that works for your organization to perform compliance mapping. For example, you might use RISC360's Phalanx tool, which can help you comply with standards like SOC 2, ISO 27001, High Trust, PCI DSS, or even ISO 27701. Heard of that, right? The Privacy Information Management System, instead of the ISO 27001, the Information Security Management System. So, if you haven't looked at the PIMS, then dig out ISO 27701, and you keep break out your checkbook because they always want to be paid with strings. Anyway, once you pick a compliance, pick a compliance tool and begin placing your evidence in it, you get to perform a readiness assessment that's gonna look for gaps. Now, you might not be 100% compliant at first, and most likely you probably are not. That's okay, you gotta start somewhere, but a readiness assessment helps you highlight findings and primes you to create remediation plans and help fix these gaps. You take these findings to your company's risk committees and you communicate the key risks in your cyber program. I think they're gonna appreciate that transparency. And they may even give you additional budget to fix it because you've come out and said, here's requirements. Here's how we stack up. Here's what we're missing. Here's an ongoing risk for organization because we're not compliant with these resources. I could make us compliant. You're the risk committee. You decide whether we want to live with the risk or we want to fix it. Don't make that decision for them. Lay out a good business case for them. as well way they make a choice. And if they say, yeah, we want to live with the risk, <laughs> document that. But if they give you the resources to fix it, go fix it. And because once you work, through these gaps, and you're able to identify the resources to get things done, now you're ready to have an external auditor come in and certify your organization. You've got something that says you're meeting the legal expectations of various standards and frameworks, whether it's a SOC 2, Type 2, or some other type of document. You can put that information out, and you can use that for your third-party customers, your suppliers that are asking, your vendors, your, your business partners, as well as you're in a defendable position Say you do enough to comply with the best practices of the industry. Think about it for a minute. Things like zero days, really tough to pre- prevent against. Stuff is going to happen. It's not a matter of if, but when. And then when lawyers go there and they say, hmm, I wonder if we can sue these people, what comes out is to say, well, what are you going to sue them for? Well, bad things happen. Bad things do happen. Was it their fault? Well, then you say, were they negligent? Well, what is negligent? It's a lack of due care. But if you can come back and say, look, we we met all these standards that are industry best practices. We have an external auditor who has attested to the fact that we have met all those and we practice those. And this bad thing still happened, not because of our negligence, but they figured out some gap in some major application that nobody knew about. And we patched it pretty quickly, but there was a window of aperture. It's going to be a lot harder for them to try to convince a courtroom that they should collect on that. They're going to probably move on to greener pastures. So make yourself resistant from a legal risk perspective, because quite honestly, legal risk is one of the types of risk we face out there in addition to financial and reputational and operational and regulatory and things such as that. Now, another key lesson to consider, don't underestimate the power of networking and engaging with peers in your industry. You can share experiences and insights. We can provide valuable perspectives on how others are navigating changing cybersecurity regulations. There's industry associations. There's online communities. They can be excellent platforms for these. fs if you're in the financial services or any of the ISACs, there are groups out there, Slack groups, cybersecurity experts and CISOs and different teams like that. Seek them out. And if you're able to contribute and add value, you'll be welcome there. I guess you could also just sort of sit there and work, But if you're not adding value to anybody else, then, I don't know, you're not going to be a welcome member of the community. So, Smart people can learn from their mistakes. Wise people are going to learn from the mistakes of others. So what we can do is you can use your network and take some lessons learned that have happened elsewhere and apply those so that blunders on your part could be avoidable. All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed learning about the concept of compliance with cyber regulations, how to work with them and what to do in your organization. And again, I didn't dive into the details. It's not the purpose of this particular episode, but just to recap a few things. There's four familiar burdens, the data incident notification laws, data minimization laws, license and business approvals, and required language in commercial contracts. And you're probably going to encounter all four of them. So think about them, write that down, and make sure that you know what they are. Don't forget about them. You don't have a blind spot. You also need to look at common standards that must be met or should be met. See, if the whole industry is doing something that you're not doing, it's really hard to explain to a regulator or a judge why your approach is better. Now, finally, don't forget to engage with your compliance teams. Why? Because you're going to be looking at cybersecurity laws and regulations for changes and you don't want to submit evidence from a prior version that says hey we're on version one from 2014 oh well they are now on version three from 2023 and the industry is using that and you've been going to an old standard so work with your compliance team and legal team to identify the scope of evidence collection for your apps as well as what's applicable and if you don't know what laws and regulations apply Okay, but chances are you may not be doing enough to show you're complying with them, so fix that knowledge base. And then finally, invest in a tool that's going to help you with compliance. Spreadsheets are great up to a point, but they don't scale beyond a certain level. There's a lot to choose from, so choose wisely, and this will help you quickly comply with the regulators. Now, if you found this episode to be helpful, share it with someone from your own company or from one of your peers. We'd love to have more followers, and we get that when you promote our show. we of course, on YouTube, as well as a number of different podcast channels. So if you're only listening to us, go tune in on YouTube and click the subscribe button so you can go ahead and get notified when we come up with more information. So thanks again for listening to the CISO Tradecraft podcast. And don't forget to check out our sponsors who support our show. And if you'd like to become a sponsor, drop us a comment on CISOTradecraft.com or contact us on LinkedIn. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy. And again, thank you for listening and stay safe out there.